Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. We were on a mission trip down in Jamaica, and we had a... um we had a little bit of a hiccup. We were supposed to be helping to prepare a, prepare a house for a lady that was under construction. It was, a, it was a, a long time need and some of the raw materials that we needed were not in place for us to be able to, to help with the construction project that we were involved in. And if you've never, you know, here if you need to pour a foundation of a home, this, this awesome thing called a, a concrete truck comes to the house and proceeds to to pour the foundation for for the home. Well, in other parts of the world, they don't have necessarily concrete trucks, and so what they bring are raw materials to make your own concrete. And so this particular day, they were missing the um, the small rocks that were needed to prepare the, the concrete, and, and we weren't completely sure if those materials were going to be there, which if you're there to help prepare this and the materials aren't in place to help prepare this, it creates a a bit of a problem. And so that night before we were supposed to go to the work site, one of the young men on our trip, um, he proceeded to pray. He asked that God would provide the pebbles that were necessary to, um, to prepare this, this home. Go ahead and throw the, that picture up of, of this, this pile of rocks that appeared the next day. So the next day after he prayed for, for pebbles, this, we come to the work site and a, a dump truck had brought a, a large load of crushed pebbles to the work site so that we could then do the work. The only problem is that the dump truck could not actually get to the site where the house was and he dropped his load about 200 yards up the hill from where the work site was. And so instead of actually preparing the foundation of the house, our team got the wonderful privilege of moving a dump truck load of rocks from one pile to another pile. And I will say that's probably the single hardest day of labor that I have ever worked in my entire life. We had a, because we didn't have enough wheelbarrows, and so we had five-gallon buckets that we were filling up with gravel and were passing them down an assembly line to, to move this, this massive pile of rocks. And so any time in my family that we talk about praying for pebbles, we're, we're asking God to do something that, that is surprising. We're asking him to do something that is, that is significant. We're asking him to do something that's unexpected. But one of the things we learned that day is, is that if you lack the resources to accomplish God's plan, first of all, you better not know what God's plan is. But secondly, if you lack those resources, that you perhaps ought to ask God to provide. We've been looking over the last four weeks. Uh, we've been walking through the storyline of the Bible. We've noticed something very important. Uh, One of the things we've noticed is that the opening pages of the book of Genesis matter. It's not just just an old antiquated book that's irrelevant for today's world. For the Christian faith to make sense, these opening chapters are absolutely consequential. We've seen that God is a creator. He is the creator. We've understood something of the the nature, the unique creation of, of human beings, 
We've watched tragically as our first parents injected sin and rebellion into the human race. And our journey through the scriptures ended last week on a hopeful tone after the disaster of the fall. We find in the midst of the mess that God had a plan. But, but even with God's plan, as we talked about last week, the, the serpent, the, the, the snake of the garden, the, the, the devil, he continued to win the hearts and minds of the children of Adam and Eve. The, the generations following Adam and Eve were, were so seemingly overtaken by the serpent's influence. Cain's offspring in particular, we read in the genealogy of Cain's descendants that, that his generations were the movers and shakers. We saw in their genealogy that they were the creators of culture. It's interesting. It seems the serpent always has a way with the culture creators. Uh, just look today to film and, and art and literature, and you see over and over again that the devil seems to have a way with those who create the culture of the human race. We talked about last week that, that nine generations away from creation, the only faithful descendants of Adam's family, the only ones left, were found in one small family, Noah and his sons. And so God initiated a, a reboot of sorts. He reminded the serpent that his will and his promises would not be thwarted, and he did so through a catastrophic act of judgment, a flood that he promised he would never send again. And when the waters receded, humanity began to pursue their creation mandate to multiply. They ignored God's instructions to fill. They clustered together perhaps out of fear, perhaps it was more comfortable. Maybe they saw some of those animals that got off the ark and they looked at those teeth in those animals and said, those may pose a threat to us later on. Genesis chapter 11, we really find their motivations, however. It's not out of fear. It's not out of convenience. We find in Genesis chapter 11 that those people were still listening to the serpent's original lies. They believed themselves to be too much like God. They saw themselves not, not created in God's image, but being just like God. And so they said, let us build a tower that reaches all the way to the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves. That, that pride was stirring there in the lives of those generations. And so instead of allowing them to continue in their idolatrous pursuit, God intervened. God intervened. He confused their language, and as a result, they had no choice but to spread out and fill the earth. Yet in spite of these judgments that God brought against the human race, God's plan and promise of redemption was still in play through it all. You know, what an encouragement for us today. You may feel like your life has somehow come off the rails in some way. You may feel like your life is not going the direction that you want it to go. You may feel like your life is not going in the direction that God wants it to go. But we need to understand this. God hasn't changed at all. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Maybe you're a Christian today and you look at your life and, and you've taken a, a few steps away from where you once were. You, you may look at your life and think, I've gone too far. 
I've made too many mistakes. God doesn't care about me. Listen, though. God hasn't changed. God wants to use you. He wants to redeem your mistakes no matter how far you have backslidden away from him. Today, I want to talk about somebody just like that. A man prone to mistakes, but who for no other reason was willing to be used by a holy God. Our journey today takes us to a man named Abram, would later become known as Abraham. And God chose this man. He tagged this man as the one who would carry on this Genesis 3.15 promise. Abraham became the one that would become the, the, the harbinger of the blessings to come. It's through Abraham that God would begin working towards that ultimate son of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. Now, it would become a very messy family tree. You read through Abraham and his, his descendants afterwards, and it is a messy, messy family tree. It makes anything we've got look, look elementary. But that messy family tree is what gets us to the ultimate serpent crusher. And it all begins with the father of it all, a man by the name of Abraham. If you got your Bibles today, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12. Would invite you to please stand with me as we read God's word together from Genesis chapter 12. I'll pick up reading in verse 1 to capture the context of our focus verse. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land, to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Abraham. Thank you, God, in his imperfections that he is someone that we can look to as a faithful man. May we be obedient and listen to you as Abram did as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, admittedly, we are not given a lot of Abram's backstory when we get to his journey in Genesis chapter 12. We don't know much about him once we arrive here in Genesis chapter 12. We can piece together something of his genealogy, of his lineage. We can track his, his parentage back all the way to Adam. But it's clear that he was a bit of a wanderer. They called him a, a nomad. Chapter 11 tells us that his family had already been on a bit of a journey. His father, Terah, left Ur 
and started heading towards Canaan, but he decided to stay put in a region known as Haran. And what we find in Genesis 11, that, that Terah died there, and his family decided to stay put. They decided to, to settle there as much as nomads do. It seems that burying your dead is a good reason to plant roots in a place. However, we need to keep in mind that halfway to God's plan is still all the way outside of God's plan. Halfway to what God wants us to do is nowhere near completing what God wants us to do. We actually find in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 5, that Abraham is described as a, as a wandering Aramean. Again, it's not a title of honor. It's a, it's a title describing someone who is, who is homeless. He doesn't have a place to, to call home. Joshua chapter 24 actually tells us that, uh, that Abraham wasn't even a follower of the Lord, that he wasn't even a, a, a totally committed to the Lord, at least not exclusively. And before he was called here in chapter 12, Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, and the father of Abra Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. So Abraham's family was, was, a, was a pagan family. They perhaps knew of the Lord, but the Lord was just added to the list. He wasn't somebody who was exclusively a follower of the Lord. We don't find that until chapter 12 when he builds an altar and he calls on the name of the Lord there in verse 8. So the picture that we are given of Abraham, of what little bit of knowledge we have here, it's not one that leaves us marveling in his accomplishments. We don't look at Father Abraham and, and say, man, what a resume he had when God called him. What a, what a remarkable, stunning picture of godliness Abraham was. So it begs a question. Why would God choose a man like Abraham to continue this covenant that he is seeking to create. Why would God choose Abraham to, to be the one that would ultimately lead to, to, we know, to be the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it wasn't because of his religious devotion. He was pulled in many directions, according to Joshua. It wasn't because he was well-established and owned land. He was a nomad. He didn't own land. That's what made him a nomad. He, he didn't own anything. He, he, the grass that his flocks ate was borrowed. It wasn't on land that he owned. It wasn't because of his youthful vigor. We're told that he was 75 years old when God spoke to him in Haran. Some of y'all are like, if I told you at 75 that you're going to march across Iraq and Syria, <laughs> that's exactly the response I would expect. Preacher, you're crazy. I'd rather lick an elevator button in China than walk across Iraq and Syria. <laughs> it wasn't because they had a large family to work with. When we're introduced to him here in chapter 12, he's got no children. There's no descendants. They're, they're over the age of, of, of really effectively bearing children. And so they're childless. And so I'm looking at Abraham and thinking, man, he's got nothing. If I'm a search committee for somebody to look for the, the person to father a nation, Abraham's resume gets stuck on the bottom of the list. But that's not what God does. See, when you break it down like this, you can't help but realize that Abraham had none of the resources needed to help accomplish 
the purpose that God has. He was childless, landless, godless, getting on up in years. However, for this landless, godless old man, God promised that he would have offspring, that he would become a great nation, and that he would become a blessing to all the earth. So it ultimately appears that God chose Abraham not because of Abraham's resources, but because Abraham was willing to be one thing. He was willing to be obedient. He was willing to listen to the Lord and do what the Lord said. And the New Testament over and over affirms this fact, that Abraham believed God, and God credited it to, to him as righteousness. And so it was inside this new relationship that God forged with Abraham that he would begin working towards his ultimate plan of redemption, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we consider Abraham's story here, and we particularly think of God's covenant relationship with Abraham, there's a few things that come to mind that we need to pay close attention to today. One of the things is, is this, throughout the biblical story, but particularly here in Abraham's story, we see that God is the one who takes the initiative in correcting the damage done by the fall. God is the one who takes the initiative to fix the damage done by the fall. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, that terrible day in the Garden of Eden when Eve and, and Adam took of the fruit and they disobeyed God, that, that first and singular act of treason against the holy God. When, when God's first action, of course, he doles out the curses on the, the man and the woman and the serpent. And so, so God takes the, takes the time to, to exact punishment against them for their treason. And while God certainly had the prerogative to say, I'm done, we're finished, I'm starting over, Notice what God does. Before he banishes them from the garden, he does something remarkable. He covers their shame. He covers their shame by shedding blood. Because I don't know about you, but I've never successfully removed the skin of an animal without that animal first being dead. It's hard to accomplish that any other way. And so God covers their shame. You see, they, they tried. And this is what humans do. When we try to cover our shame, we, we come up kind of short. And so what did Adam and Eve do? Well, they, they took fig leaves and they sewed them together. Man's best effort to cover their shame was pitiful at best. How do I know? I got a fig tree in my yard. And I, I've thought a lot about that fig tree. I hate mowing around the fig tree because the way it, it, I just don't like it. But I like the fig tree. I don't like what it does, but I like the fig tree. But as I mow my lawn during the summer, I look at that fig tree, and I, I'm a preacher. And so I see a fig tree, and I, I think, well, you know, that's what Adam and Eve used to create covering for themselves. And so I look at those fig leaves, and I think to myself, what an insufficient way to cover one's shame. And my neighbors probably appreciate that I've not tried to replicate Adam and Eve's efforts. <laughs> because those fig leaves are not the best option 
for covering one's self. It's inadequate. I would dare say it was pitiful. Can you imagine trying to knit yourself together a covering of fig leaves? I suspect that, that you would still be trying to hold the leaves in place when you stepped out in front of a holy God. God had a better way to cover shame. And God takes the initiative to cover their shame. Some animals gave their lives that they, their shame could be covered. Listen, that pattern is repeated over and over and over and over again. In the days of the flood, what did God do? God gave Noah a plan for a boat, a boat that would be able to save and deliver mankind from judgment if they chose to come aboard. God initiated the plan to deliver mankind. In the days of Moses, God tracked down his man, broke through the silence, through the miracle of the burning bush. God's the one who initiated that conversation. Moses wasn't staring at the bush like I was staring at the fig tree, hoping it would talk to him. The Bible tells us that Moses saw the bush burning and he went over to investigate because guess what? You don't see bushes burning very often. And out of that burning bush, God spoke. God initiated that conversation. Over and over again, God seeks out his people. God sets plans in motion. And let us not ever forget that when we flip over to the pages of our New Testament... That it is God who initiates those conversations with Mary and Joseph to tell them what his plan is. It is God who saw our greatest need and sent his son. It is God who knew our terrible condition, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we look at Abraham, God called Abraham without a lot of details. He didn't give him a book and say, here's what you're going to do. Didn't even give him an atlas. For those of you who are younger than 30, an atlas is what we used to have. It was a, it was a book with print maps in it. Uh, you could open the print map, and, and you, could, you could use it and figure out how to get from point A to point B. Now, keep in mind, an atlas didn't have a little blue dot on it that moved when you moved. So you had to learn how to read it and learn how to use it. Okay? Didn't give Abraham one of those. Didn't give him an atlas and say, here, take the interstate through Iraq, hang a left in Syria, and you'll be in the land. There'll be a welcome center there. You can get some brochures, and you'll be exactly where you need to be. He didn't give him any of those things. He said, I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you. And Abraham doesn't say, well, Lord, can you give me some information first to make sure that I'm, I'm ready to do this, that I'm willing to go this far? He says, go to the land that I'm going to show you. And Abraham does what? Yes, sir. Okay. And one of the greatest truths affirmed over and over again in the Bible is that wonderful phrase from, that Paul uses so much. Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by his faith that God was who he said he was and that God would do what he said he would do. Church, listen, God has taken every step, provided for every condition. He has atoned for every sin. And he's left but one step for you today. And it is that step of faith.
In the same way that Abraham was justified by his faith, when you place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you too are justified by your faith. It is not by your works. It is not by your accomplishments. It is not by your resume. It is by the simple question when you are presented with what God has done and he asks for your faith, he asks for your obedience, he asks for your heart, you say yes or you say no. And it really comes down to something that simple. You were either justified by your faith or you were condemned by your rebellion. God took care of every last detail, provided for every last need, and he wants you to take the step of faith toward him. Abraham took a step of faith that led him in the direction of Canaan and all the promises of God. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, he wants you today to take that step of faith toward the cross to find that he has done everything necessary to rescue us from sin and rescue us from death and give us eternal life with him forevermore. God has taken the initiative to overcome the damage done by the fall. A second thing we gain from Abraham's perspective here is we understand this, that God isn't looking for availability of resources. He's looking for availability of heart. God isn't looking for availability of resources. He is looking for availability of heart. For those of us who are already Christians today, Abraham serves as a very potent reminder of this very important truth. You've likely heard the cliche before, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. It's a cliche because there's some truth there. It's covered in truth. Abraham reminds us of that. He had absolutely nothing that he needed to see God's promises over him realized. He had nothing to bring to the table. He couldn't contribute anything to the process. God says, I want to make you a great nation. And Abraham says, Lord, I own all kinds of livestock, but I don't own the first square inch of property. God says, I want to give you descendants. And Abraham says, Lord, I don't have a child. God wants you to be a blessing to the nations. And he says, Lord, I got lots of money, but I don't have that kind of money. God says, I want to make you a father. Lord, I'm kind of in the grandfather zone right now, if you know what I mean. God says, okay. You are exactly who I need. I wonder how many people in our churches fit this bill. I wonder how many people in our congregations that gather on Sunday mornings fit this bill. They look at their availability of resources and they say, I just don't have what it takes to do what God wants me to do. Here's the thing. God is far less worried about the tools in your toolbox than he is concerned with the willingness in your heart. I was at a meeting on Wednesday morning down in Dalton. About 75 pastors from all over northwest Georgia. I won't lie, it was so discouraging. Sometimes these meetings, you get together and they're, they're meetings to be encouraged. And this particular meeting was very discouraging. I walked away from it not necessarily excited about the condition of God's churches. Hearing from all these men, and they were lamenting what we so frequently call the 80-20 rule that was afflicting their churches. You know that rule, 80% of the work 
80% of the resources comes from 20% of the, the folks. Now, I was listening to men share about this problem that happened all over the place. It occurred to me that this wasn't a God problem. This wasn't a God problem at all. Because God was able to take a landless, godless, childless old man and make him the father of a great nation. If God can take a landless, godless, childless old man and do what he did with Abraham, then there's really nothing God can't do with people like us. There's really no limit to the extent of what God can do. You see, what made that man useful in the Lord's economy was the fact that he was willing to walk to Canaan without knowing where he was going. He literally walked across Iraq and Syria without knowing where his final destination was. He could have ended up in Great Britain if God didn't say turn left. He literally walked across what is today a, a barren wasteland. Because God said go until you get to the place that I'm telling you to go. There's a lot of folks today who their profession is that of being a Christian. But they won't even walk across the street and invite their neighbors to church. Listen, we don't have a resource problem. We don't have a resource problem at all. We have a heart problem. The Bible says God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's not at all worried about resources. But he is worried about what goes inside our, on inside our chest. Lastly, you know, the church today should still be seeking to bless the nations. The last part of Abraham's promise is that he would be a blessing to the nations. Now, now that's part of the covenant that, that Abraham and his descendants struggled to fulfill. Part of that struggle came because they didn't really understand what it meant to be a blessing. I think we still struggle with defining that today. Abraham had material resources. He had wealth. But he still wrestled with what it meant to be a blessing to the nations. If you go back, though, and think about Adam and Eve, I think we can understand what it means to be a blessing to the nations. What blessing did Adam and Eve possess? And you say, man, they lived in this perfect garden. They, had, they, had, they lived in, in this infinite perfection there in the garden. And that's great. But I firmly believe that you could take away the garden, create Adam and Eve in empty space, and not take away one thing, and they would still have blessings beyond the wildest imagination. And the blessing that they experienced was that intimate walk with God, day in and day out. The garden was great, but the greatest blessing they had was that daily communion with God, where they could walk with God, talk with God, worship God daily without anything hindering them. You literally could have stripped away everything else in Eden. But as long as they had that incredible, unfettered access to God, they had the greatest blessing that humankind has ever known. Isn't that exactly what the gospel does? The gospel doesn't promise financial prosperity material success. The gospel doesn't even guarantee a freedom from hardship. 
The gospel doesn't guarantee that we won't catch the coronavirus or SARS or MERS or whatever other kind of bug that we create. But the gospel does guarantee something profound. That when those who are in Christ put their faith and trust in Jesus, that God will come and live in us through God the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, we have this incredible daily communion with God, this ability to walk with God because He walks with us. He takes up his, life, his residence inside of us. The gospel guarantees God's ultimate blessing, a personal relationship with our Creator. And as we think of God's promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations as the church today, we must continue to ensure that we are a blessing to the nations by making sure that we are doing our part to see that the gospel reaches the ends of the earth. You know, as we look at Abraham, we see ourselves. We see that God wants to use unlikely people in unlikely ways to accomplish his plans. Abraham was that old, childless, idolatrous nomad, but God used him to build a nation. And that story is repeated over and over and over again in the pages of the Bible, most unlikely of candidates being put to work in the most unexpected of ways. And it might just be that today, you are somebody whose resume suggests that you're not a good fit for the job. But when God gets a hold of your heart, your resume isn't nearly as important as your willingness to look to God and say, yes, Lord, whatever you say. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we come before you today grateful for the example of Abraham a wandering Aramean, a nomad, a shepherd, a, a, a guy that didn't fit the bill, didn't fit the qualifications, didn't have all, the, all his ducks in a row. But he was willing to say, yes, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. He was willing to, to walk to whatever destination you had in mind. He was willing to go the distance for you. And he was not perfect. He messed up along the way. There were some <laughs> catastrophic failures in his life. But through it all, he stayed close to you. And even in the midst of the greatest failures, he sought your face and sought to be in a right relationship with you. And he was justified by his faith. Thank you, Father, that today, as men and women gathered in this room, if we are Christians today, God, we still stand under that wonderful truth that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. But Lord, we desire to be obedient to you because of what you've done. We don't seek to be good in hopes that it'll earn your favor. God, we seek to be obedient to you because of what you have done for us. You initiated that conversation. You initiated rescuing us. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. So, God, you've extended this incredible hand of grace and forgiveness. And you ask us to take that one step of faith in believing on you. 
So God, I pray that in these moments, that if there's any here in this room today who they understand they are, they are not justified right now, that if they were called to stand before you today, there would be no shelter, there would be no forgiveness for them because of their rejection of your offer. But today in this moment, they can receive this incredible offer. You've done everything necessary to rescue them. You've done everything necessary to save them. If they will but reach out in faith and take hold of a hand that's been pierced by a nail, that's blood has been shed for their forgiveness. And today they can be justified. Today they can stand before a holy God knowing that they are covered in the blood that shelters them, that forgives them. You have paid the price. You have paid the ransom. You've done everything necessary. If we will but by faith receive the offer. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.